Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. Part of my growth has been when I'm in these really shitty situations, I can actually see that there's something on the other side of it, that there is going to be a gift, even though I'm in the shit right now. You're talking about our golf game yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) I did win one hole. Where have you felt that in your life where you're like, this is fucking terrible. Shit's burning down all around me. And then it was like one of the best things that ever happened. I got a horrible review in uh, LA. The guy that booked that room came out, saw me do 15 minutes and just smoke. And then he booked me to headline the laugh stop. Well, the two guys the week before me were a guy named Bobby Slayton, who's a huge club act and Jerry Seinfeld. Then it was my three-year-old act. So I went on stage and I thought I pulled it off. It wasn't my best, but they laughed where they were supposed to. And this uh, review probably be the start of my career. This one girl goes, don't read it, Ron. It's not true. It doesn't matter. I'm like, yeah, that matters to me. I dropped the paper a couple of times while I was reading it because I couldn't control my hands. I was just, and I also felt like I had been found out that I was a phony. But what it taught me was that's not where I should have been. Go back to the Midwest where things really don't matter and sharpen the blade. I don't think anybody else could have done it. Could have kicked me in the ass with such an impact that it changed the direction I was going years later. The blue collar thing happened and I was one of the bigger comics in the country. And then when I went out to L.A., it was all on my terms and I'd earned it. I think I want to start out by thanking Tim Phelps, our beloved pro who set us up together a couple months ago. Tim Phelps, you know, I was playing out, used to play at the Montecito Country Club uh, out in California. And uh Tim was the head pro out there, but not while I was really playing there a lot. I just came back and played with a buddy of mine and he was the head pro. And, and uh, he said, yeah, I'm uh, moving to Texas. And I'm like, oh, really? Where? Uh, Driftwood. I'm like, I'm a member there, dude. <laughs> how, how random is that? You, know, you were already yeah, a member. I was already a member. Yeah. Oh, shit. So everybody was raving about the guy there saying that he was super, you know, super good uh, head pro. So yeah, he... Catch. He's been awesome, but but he paired us together a couple months ago, and I mean, that certainly started our relationship, and like, I've always loved comedy. I mean, who doesn't really love it? But I'd never experienced it in the club setting, you know, like the, the comedy Mothership Joe's Club, and you, the first time I went is when you were a guest on Kill Tony, so you invited Peyton and I to go, and that was the first time she had been as well. And I fell in love with it. I loved that show. That was so cool. I went down a rabbit hole after that episode. Um, and then came soon after to see you perform again. And then I go twice a week now and I, I just can't get enough of it. So it kind of, I don't even want to say it reignited. I found this other part of comedy that I didn't really know existed or hadn't experienced that club scene. And just fell in love with it. Such a unique uh, place. You know, it's an easy place to fall in love with the way it's designed. It's a great experience just to go to a show there because of uh, what Joe did with it. But as a comic, 
it's just, uh, you know, I feel like it, if it wouldn't have been for that, I would have let it all dry up because I was just sick of the road. And, and I really didn't want to just come back and do somebody's open mic night once a week. And I didn't think that was really enough stage time anyway to keep me sharp. And so Joe wouldn't hear any of it when I told him I was going to retire. He said, you're not going to retire. So they had a big, uh, retirement party. He wouldn't go. He's not retiring. I'm not going to go to a retirement party. No way. We're going to build this club. He's going to fall in love with it. He's going to go out and he's going to have a blast and do what he's good at. And, and he was exactly right. You know, I, I, I probably enjoy going on stage more now than I have in, you know, 30 years and, uh, and just the hang of the green room and the tribal aspect of the comics that are hanging out up there. And which is a pretty restricted group. You know, that not just anybody goes in that green room and, but you have an opportunity as a comic to do four sets a night if you want to, you know, uh, and that's a unique position to be in and you can really keep your skills really, really sharp. You know, it's like working out and, uh, and, and I, I know that in that with kill Tony and what, with what Joe's really promoting up there, which is the growth of uh, young comics and uh, and that's where you'll find a great club one that really cultivates that open mic night and there they're able to do it with kill tony where they're able to if somebody has a good set they can award them another set you know uh, uh right away uh uh in any of the venues in town that they mess with so you know it's, it's such an amazing opportunity i mean if i was a young comic uh or an old comic giving advice i would say move to austin because the stage time is here. Uh, Joe, unlike uh, the people in New York or LA, actually pays money to the comics uh, that they can live off of. So you can <clears throat> come here as a comic and not leave town and make money, you know, a, a good living. I mean, these kids are making, just bouncing all over town. There's seven or eight clubs and they're all doing stand up. So. What's it like in so what what are what are they being paid or are they not being paid in these other places to go up on on stage? Well, when I was a when I was doing shows at the comedy store for my they paid me thirty dollars a set. Uh but at my regular shows I was making seventy five thousand. So thirty dollars is less. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know. But and I also it, it was kind of an insult. So I never picked up a check. So they have a stack of checks this big, uh, with my name on them. And I, cause I just wouldn't go get them. And, uh, and I told them we'll save it up till we can throw a party for somebody. But now everybody's moved here. The checks are still out in LA. So I'm going to move them down here and throw the party here in yes. town. Yes. So, uh, but you know, it really is a, for, for me, you know, it just, it, it was the most perfect thing to happen. Cause I always knew I'd end up in Austin. And then uh, when I found out that Joe was thinking about it, and he only thought about it for about 20 minutes before he did it, which is kind of how he is. You know, he's pretty impetuous when he decides he wants to do something. He just moves right on ahead and does it. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's down here. And, and he and I had gotten close. It was kind of weird because I, I, uh, I have a really good friend, Jay McGraw, who's Dr. Phil's son. And he and I have been really close for years. And, uh, and, and Joe, uh, Joe's daughter and his daughter went to the same school. So their wives became friends, but both of those guys are kind of hard to get to know, you know, uh, and, 
uh, but both great guys. So they were both asking me about the other one and, uh, and both of them really good friends of mine. I'm like, yeah, you know, give him a chance. He's a good guy, you know? And, uh, next thing you know, they're in Cabo. I'm getting pictures with them without shirts on. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, but it's, what, what happened to my buddies? All of a sudden they're traveling without me. I don't <laughs> So I'm, I'm careful now, uh, just yeah. how much I'll endorse a friendship. Before yeah. I, I get robbed. So, yeah. but it's kind of cool that they, they ended up being such good friends and, uh, uh, they, uh, but you know, why not? Well, I, I've heard Joe multiple times on his podcast, whether you've been the guest or somebody else credit you, he and Tony both credit you with bringing both of them here. I think I made it a little more inviting because I, I knew about Austin because I'd been coming here since I was 15. And uh, my my best friend's uh, brother taught economics at uh, UT and lived in a house on 4th Street. Those were just low-end houses, uh, that whole area. And uh, I would tell my parents we were going camping at Lake Sutherland, and uh, which I still don't know where that is. And we'd never <laughs> there once and we'd go straight and his brother would let us stay in his yard he wouldn't even let us in the house but we had camping equipment so we'd set it up and then walk two blocks of sixth street and there's the biggest circus we've ever seen you know and uh just you know it was early 70s people were tripping hard just unicycles and juggling and music pouring out of every venue and and even then people were going it's over you missed it it's, it was, uh, it's nothing like it used to be. And I'm like, looks, looks pretty good to me, man. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you've ever been to Deer Park, but we don't have one of these things, not <laughs> one of them, not one aspect of it. And, uh, so it's, it's kind of funny to me that after all these years, people are still saying that, or, yeah, it's not what it used to be. I'm like, when did you get here? Thursday? Really? Taking a hit since Thursday? <laughs> but I, and I still, uh, you know, in no town that is cool will remain the same because it's, if it seems cool to you, it's going to seem cool to somebody else. And, uh, but that growth is what, you know, what, you know, we end up with the, the mothership and, uh, which, which will thrive in this environment. So, uh, it's, it, it's really a jewel of a thing to have in my life, you know, just like the club and the camaraderie, you know? Well, yeah, you've talked, you and I've talked about that quite a bit and just what it feels like, to, to have a, a tribe like that. And it's something we talked about a few minutes ago about how I've, you know, been really intentional about creating a tribe and creating a space where men can get together and share. Maybe it's some deep shit. Maybe it's just having some laughs. Maybe it's watching a game, playing ping pong, whatever. But just to be in the, the space of other men where the guards are down and you could just show up. And I think like when whenever you've talked about what, what you get, I mean, technically it could be on a nightly basis, but you're down at the club three, four nights a week and you get to just drop into that. Like, what's it, A, what's that been like for you? Because there was a period of time, I'm sure you didn't have that. And then to drop into that, like, holy shit. Well, you know, it, it I've also kind of embraced my uh, <clears throat> position of elder statesman and, uh, so I, you know, I know the young comics want to hear what I've got to say and they, uh, or, or maybe they don't, maybe that's my head, but, uh, you know, they, they seem to, and, uh, and that's okay with me. You know, I, I'm, I, I don't mind being a leader 
uh, in, in this group of people, you know, that are all, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to grow as artists and it doesn't matter what level you're at. Uh, you still want to see growth, you know, more than anything else. And, uh, so, uh, so it's a, it's a cool thing. You know, they had to kill Tony the, the other night. And back when they had all the people in the alley that are waiting. So there's 150 yeah. people out there. And, and I was walking up there and I had all these people back there clogging the alleyway. And I was, I was kind of in a grumpy mood and I was like, ah, and then one of them says, make way for the King. And uh, they all parted and started clapping. I've been back every Monday since. <laughs> now they, just to walk through the just, alley, just, just to get walk back through in the your alley. car and go yeah. home. Yeah. Hey, where's that make way for the King guy? Yeah, do your line, dude. Do your line. <laughs> So now they had to move it out of the alley. So they moved Oh, it. it's not in the alley anymore. No, they had to move them into a club. The city of Austin said, no, we can't have people hanging out in the alleys. I'm like, oh, that must be new. Because <laughs> uh, there were people hanging out in the alleys always. And, yes. Uh, but anyway, that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that, that, that club is just, it's just uh, special to me. And I embrace my position in it and, you know, and, uh, and it's the place a place I've got to have, you know, I just, uh, it's so perfect. And I feel like I can really keep my chops sharp without going on the road. And that is just amazing. And I, I really didn't feel that way as much. I mean, I went to the comedy store all the time, uh, but I really didn't love the crowds there all the time. And you really had to work and you were also following some really strong comics. I mean, Ali Wong, Sebastian Maniscalco and all those guys every night. And it seemed like everybody was gunning for everybody. And it seems like here, everybody's pulling for everybody. And, uh, so there's no petty, anything going on. Uh, it's, you know, and I, I try to, you know, encourage the guys that I think are good and, uh, and girls and, and, uh, <clears throat> because I know that strokes from somebody higher up the ladder matter to you. And it really can make you, you know, I remember some really kind things other people said about me when I was, you know, a young comic and how much it meant to me to, to just be encouraged, you know, a little bit, to keep going. If they suck, I ignore them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't do. see where you would, uh, yeah, you'd lean into them too hard there. Well, let's talk about your retirement. You know, I've, I've had plenty of friends that have played, professional sports and just had conversations with them about what it feels like to come to what they've, I mean, for them, it's, you know, it's over, you know, for you, it's more of a decision for me. I was a trader after 18 years, I, I stepped away. I could technically go back to that. Right? right. I'm not interested in it, but, um, and so the athletes a little bit different cause they, they're not welcome anymore. They don't right. have the skills. But for you, like, what was that process of coming to the realization that it's, I'm done? You know, I, I, I did it for 37 years at a, just an intense level, you know, just uh, uh, because I always thought it would, I never really believed in it, you know, and I always thought it would, I would be found out or it would come to an end, and, uh, which it inevitably always does. And, uh, but this just kept going and going and going and, uh, and 23 years in theaters. Uh, and, and, but I was just so tired of it and, uh, and just tired from, from just all the travel. And I was still doing 110 cities a year, but at the peak, I was doing 145 and that's four and five cities a week. 
you know, with a couple of weeks off a year and uh, to get all those cities in. And I just kept doing it because I kept thinking it would come to an end that something would happen. And, uh, and then nothing did. And I was like, somebody's got to put a stop to this. So it's going to be me. So, yeah. And I just, I just decided, I mean, what am I doing it for now? You know, I, I don't need the money. Uh, the fans have been really, really good to me that way. And, uh, so I, and so am I just out there chasing money? I don't need, I don't, I didn't understand for a while why I was still doing it. And, uh, the, the show still worked and, uh, but the travel was starting to beat me up and, uh, and, you know, really I was just tired of it. I was tired of the whole process of it. And, uh, so I decided, well, that's, that's, that's it. You can't keep doing this if you feel that way about it and why do it. And then it turned out it was just all the travel, you know, the stand-up I missed immediately, you know, the, you know, the, but it's, it's, it's also easy to let something dry up too, because it's nice to stay home, yeah. you know, but so if it would have just been a mediocre option besides, you know, instead of the mothership, I probably wouldn't have done it. And, uh, the mothership's kind of what drew, drew me in. And it's so much fun doing shows there that, uh, that, you know, Joe hired me to be the first headliner, which I was never going to even do that again. I was just going to do 15 minute sets. That's it. So this went up to a 40 minute set and it was fun as it could be. And then I got some really big offers for new years and I decided to take them. So, uh, uh so that, that'll mean I had a year off and then, uh, and then I decided, well, if I'm going to get the show in good enough shape to go out and do an hour for those shows, I might as well do a month. Hmm. So now I gave my managers and agents the month of January to do whatever they wanted. And, and, and they, they've already come back and said, well, we got one on February 2nd. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> January, that's yeah. it. And, uh, so I'm going to work for a month and see how I feel about it. And, and, uh, but now, you know, you can stay sharp anyway. So, you know, you can be pretty, it won't take that much to get me ready to go if I decide to do more shows. And I, I, I don't really expect that I will. I, I think I'll do those shows and do that traveling and go, I can just do this at home. Yeah. Cause it is just so, so fulfilling just going down to the club and just doing your sets and being with the crew and, and just from as, as an audience member, the energy of the club is it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's all, I mean, and I, I'd love for you to speak about this, but what it's like, you were talking about LA is the the crowds are a little different. It feels like here. It's so, for me, it's like just so fun to be in the club and then the comics come out and then they inevitably they've been killing since, you know, so many of the shows I've gone to these 15 minute sets and I've seen multiple, multiple comedians four five, six times. And it's really cool to witness how the bits change and shift and what's gets dropped and what gets added. It's such a cool process. And I'd, I'd love to get into that at some point, like what that's like. Well, you know, the, uh, the, the venue <clears throat> matters in stand-up comedy or anything. Right. So I like to play the Fox in Atlanta. 4,500 seat ornate, beautiful thing because going to the Fox is an experience in and of itself. So if you can tack a really good show on top of that as a reason to go to the Fox, the building itself sells tickets, right? Just because it's such a cool thing to do. Just go to the Fox and see the show. 
And I feel like the mothership kind of does that too. You know, it's a fun place to go. It's also a hard ticket to get. So people appreciate it when they've got it. And, uh, the, the, uh, and, and, and we do have a, 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 you know, Joe is definitely the leader of the gang there, which is great. And, uh, so he kind of polices who can come into that green room, even if you graduate to the green room, which isn't even really a term yet, but it will become one. Yep. Uh, because it's not too, it's not big enough for everybody that does stand up to go hang out in there. And we want it to be us, you know, to exchange of ideas. You know, I was talking to, to Theo Vaughn last night about, about how he should be brought on stage and as opposed to the way he's doing it. And, uh, so, and I was, and I'm right, a hundred percent right, which he knew as soon as I told him what he was doing wrong. And, uh, but you can let those ideas float around and, uh, and you don't have to wait and learn it on your own in 15 years. Somebody can pass that information on to you. Um, but they, but Joe's built, you know, what I consider the best comedy club ever built. And, uh, you know, he listened to everybody while he was building it. And, uh, but it was his dream. And, uh, you know, it, the beautiful thing is that 80% of the door goes to the comedians. Wow. Uh, he doesn't carry, I mean, he, he pays for his overhead off the cocktails and, and, uh, and, but he wants it to be a place, you know, where comics can go and make some, make some bucks while they're learning, you know, learning the craft. And, uh, so, and he, he did it. Um, but the, it, the space itself is, is, is worth the ticket. And then you add good, good comics on top of that. It makes a fun night. So. Well, one of the concepts I, I love, and I believe it came from the comedy store, but all the door men and women that work there are aspiring comics. And so it's got this energy of, and, and, you know, I'll be at a show and one of them will come up and open the show. And it's like, so cool. And then as I walk out, they're getting my, work. getting my phone out of the bag. Right. Yeah. You know, that's just, uh, they, they just nurture that kind of stuff, you know, and, uh, uh, I don't know how that started at the comedy store where the door guys, you know, that's where Tony came from. He was a door guy and, uh, uh, but, uh, that's how they do it. And, uh, and I think it's very cool. Now you can really watch those guys grow because, uh, you know, that you'll see a lot of change in a comic that's only been doing it for a few months. And, uh, and the only, and the answer to all questions, stand up comedy is stage time. That's the answer get on stage every single time you can get on stage, put a microphone in your hand. It doesn't matter what the circumstances, give it a try, give it a try, give it a try. So, you know, so, so these kids are getting more stage time than anybody, you know, uh, and if they were in LA, you know, they'd be, they, they'd have one spot a week at one thirty in the morning in front of 12 people and just go up there and eat it. That's hard to do, you know, and, and, uh, and to be driven to go ahead and do it enough it's really just not a great time, a great place for uh, young comics to be, uh, in my opinion. So I never stayed out there. I went out there after I'd already become a big uh, draw and I did it for a reason. You know, I now somebody like me can go there and get all the stage time they want. Yeah. Uh, so because there the, you could do three shows a night uh, at, at the comedy store and then you could bounce around to the Laugh Factory, which I never really liked and the improv, which I liked less. <laughs> but bounce around and get some sets in, but they're all paid 30 bucks. So it's well, and then down, down by the, the mothership, 
how many clubs are within walking distance? I mean, I'm hearing, you know, I hear stories of, you know, someone who's working, they're going to bust over to Vulcan and do a quick set and come back and like, just to right. be able to do that. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. There's um Creek in the caves right around the corner. The Vulcan's still doing stand up. Sunset's doing stand up. East Austin comedy club, uh, uh, Cap city up, up North. Uh, the green room's still right across the street. Uh, it's been there. I used to play that room when I was a young comic wow. and it's still there. So it's, and, and then, and then besides that, there are little open mic nights all over the place now that are springing up because the guys that there are still guys that can't get on every stage. Yeah. So they'll go invent it themselves, which is smart. Yeah. And, uh, I used to go, uh, when I first started, I would go to this, I'd go to restaurants, you know, like in a hotel and I would set up a, an open mic night or, or a comedy competition. And, uh, and first place would be dinner for two at the restaurant. And then I would only invite comics that I was better than. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I would eat the dinner. And, and I needed the dinner. You know, it was a big deal, $40 worth of food or whatever it was. So I did that all the time. But I knew there were two guys that would get the food. I didn't let, I didn't let them know. So, so sometimes you have to be, be self-serving, I guess. And, uh, yeah. But but that was one of the ways I got to be a good, uh, a good host. Is, and also I realized that uh, most of the guys that were the opening act weren't good hosts. They, you know, they didn't memorize the announcements. They didn't do, they didn't do it slick. They only cared about the time they did doing standup, which almost didn't matter compared to hosting the show, which is, was your real job That's what you're called. And so I thought, well, I'll just be a really good host. I'll memorize everything. I'll make it sound slick. I'll make it sound like show business. And, uh, then the show will go off without a hitch. And whether I'm the funniest guy doing that spot or not, I'm going to be the best at that. And uh, so, and as a result, you know, I got a lot of stage time. I was, you know, there were four clubs in Dallas. And so, you know, I'd uh, do all them once a week so or once a month. So I was, I was working every night and just, just from paying attention, you know, to what the job really entailed. That's such a great idea concept too, because that that is part of your stage time. It's not your, your, you know, and you can obviously mix in your personal brand and your comedy as you're making these, what could be mundane announcements that others are kind of treating as such, but you're connecting with the crowd. And so you use it as, as a way to like buy them into like, I'm, I'm a guy that right. you're going to like. And the other guys are, you know, pulling a piece of wadded up paper out of their pocket. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next week, Henry Cho. And, but I make it sound like you don't need a piece of paper in your pocket to know who Henry Cho is, Yeah, but you do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I can make Henry Cho sound like a bigger deal than he is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and they'll love Henry Cho. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to just break down, you know, within the club, you've got the two, you got fat man, and little boy, the two rooms, it's like, let's call it 250 in one, 120 in the other. And then you've got theaters, you've got arenas, you've got fucking hotels. Like, what's the difference in stepping on these different stages? And why, why, is, why is it important? Well, because in stand-up comedy, you're going to be put in different environments all the time. So it's better if you're not, I mean, if you're not tuned into one thing that makes you think that that's correct. Right. So all these rooms are different and they're all the way from the Creek in the cave is really a dump. 
but it's got a good stage. Doesn't matter. You got to get used to the sound. Uh, I haven't been to uh, the Vulcan since Joe opened his club. In fact, I haven't done a set anywhere else. And, uh, and my tendency is not to. Uh, that if they want to see me, they got to come to the Joe's club because I can do all the sets I need there. And it's really convenient. And I love it. Love it. Love it. So you've got the hang. It's all your boys and yeah, girls. Like, it it's just such a vibe. So it's like, why, why would you? Right. So I'm not, I don't need to go chase uh, anything, you know? So, uh, and, and, and people say, ah, oh, you're just being loyal to Joe. And I'm like, well, maybe, but, uh, but it's also myself, you know, it's, it's just, I don't, I don't know if I want to do all of them. And one day I might decide I want to go do all of them, but for right now, uh, I only do that room. And, and it's the, again, it's like it, it, people will throw their, project their shit onto you, but it's like, what do you want? It's like, I want to go where I know it's a 10 out of 10. The hang is amazing. I don't, it's not in these weird kind of like around other people that you don't maybe know that, which is, I'm sure you're fine with, but like when you know that you go down there, this is a known entity. I'm going to go into this green room and immediately drop into just the, I don't even know how to describe it. Just an energy where you just so you like, why would you do anything else? At this stage in the game. Uh, yeah. I've, I've Well, at this point, I've just chosen not to. So it's also yeah. easier not to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to think about it. And, uh, you know, they, they try to get me to go to the, the new club around the corner all the time. And everybody goes over there and does sets. And I'm like, well, I, well, I asked them, I said, do you sell my tequila? And they go, well, uh, I'm like, let me know yeah. when you get that on the shelf. Yeah, perfect. And, uh, <laughs> right? Right. So... Because, you know, that's how club owners are. You know, they care about themselves. And if they know that there's something that you got going on, they don't care about that. So, well, the club, those club owners knew I had owned a tequila company. It's the best tequila in the land and they should sell it. But it's easier not to. You know, it's easier. Ah, people don't ask for it. They always ask for Patron. And of course, they ask for those ones. And yeah. if they did ask for yours, they're not going to necessarily hear about it. The bartender, unless a lot of people are asking about it. So yeah, anyway, so that right, and so right now, for just for now, I'm just doing the all of my sets at Joe's Club. How different is it to go from just those two rooms, from the you know Fat Man and Little Boy, like when you're doing your set? Uh, you know, I I really like I really like them both, uh, and you know, other than this, you know, the, the there's less people, but it's also a smaller room, so it sounds balanced. You know, it's, but it is a little different experience for the comic, but it's a, it's a good mix up. Stage is smaller. Stage is smaller. It's all, it it all feels a little different. So it's, it's good to be used to both of them, you know, and now I, I, I don't even have a preference. Yeah. I, I I'm still bummed. I haven't seen you in the little room yet. I've, I've been over there a handful of times now. And I think I told you, I saw Andrew Dice Clay in the little room and that was amazing, but you're right there. You're really right there with the comic. Right. It's special. Yeah, no, I like, I, you know, I, I like them both. And, and to, to be able to just pop in and out of both of them all night is just, uh, you know. Yeah. Glorious. So walk, walk, kind of walk us through a night where you're going to do four sets. You roll into the club. I think the first shows usually start at seven and one and seven thirty, and then 10 and 10 30. Right. Right. Well, I come in with, uh, with no plan. I'll tell Joe that, uh, that I'm coming in. And, uh, so he'll make sure I've got spots 
and uh in the big room and then i can always walk on to live in a little room anytime i want and uh uh you know i like to go on uh late in the first show early in the second show so i can get home to my girlfriend and and uh she I, I, she she comes with me to some of the shows and I think she loves kill tony so I, I take her out to kill tony a lot uh but for the most part i like that hang by myself you know the uh yeah and uh which is like, it can be a point of contention with us, but that's always been my thing. And, and, uh, and she knows it and she respects it. And, uh, but if there's a really good comic, you know, David tell, I, I took her out to that show. And, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, I forgot what we were talking about when we we're talking about. Yeah. Just, um, I forgot too. Cause I was thinking about, yeah, Jeannie, I love kill Tony too. Like I'm yeah. such a huge fan of that show. It's been so fun. I've been fortunate enough through uh, cause gel blasters is one of their sponsors and Colin who started the company is a good friend. And I was one of the, he's actually technically the first investor, but I've able been able to go to the show because of that. Otherwise you can't get in. I mean, they're sold out as soon as they go on sale. Right. But it's so cool. And if anyone will, we'll link to Ron's latest uh, appearance on kill Tony in the show notes for, for just watch it. And watch it on YouTube. Like it's important to actually see what's happening. I mean, you still enjoy it if you listen to it on just the, the audio, but it is such a cool experience. Well, they do have they they have video of it too, right? They've, yeah, it's on YouTube. Okay. Yeah, so it's just it's 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 different when you see the comics and you see everyone. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, Tony and I got to be friends drinking at the bar and uh, you know and at the comedy store and. Uh, and I liked him so much that I I had never seen him do stand up. I just you know you just hang out at the bar and uh, and then I got to where I was kind of afraid to watch him do stand up because if he sucked I wouldn't like <laughs> I wouldn't like him. I bet. And uh, so I I really avoided him. And then I found out how funny he was. I was like I don't know what I was worried about. You know he's doing this uh, all good rooms does a lot of sets for sure. He's good. And then to see him grow and over the years into what he is today, which is just a monster. You know. Uh, and the show's doing so well. I can't believe that this is their 10th anniversary and uh, this week at ACL Live. And uh, that sold out in just a couple of minutes. So. Yeah. Are you guys going to go to that? Absolutely. Okay. We're going to be there too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and, that, and so I'm really excited for him. I'm really, uh, I just love it uh, when friends do well, you know, and uh, and then he's going to do, well, I, I guess that's a big announcement he can make another big thing coming up with him too. So. Perfect. So we're all excited for him. You know, uh, he's, uh, he's really good. And he's uh, becoming a huge draw and they really tried to cancel him, but it didn't work very well. And it was just complete bullshit anyway. And, uh, uh, but we got an environment now we can thrive in, you know, that they have phones locked up. So you can't take things we say out of context. Yeah, Let's, and, let's talk about that. Cause that is math. I got to see, I mean, for as an audience member, what I've told people when I go to a show, I feel like it's comedy from years ago. And it was like comedy because this is what comedy is. And you aren't getting snippets of things where someone sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, the uh, stand up comedy is best when you find the line and just step over it. And, uh, but now everybody that's offended by that step screams like little bitches and, and and I guess they want, you know, when the when the club first opened, 
I was going through TikTok, which I do way too much. And there's a girl that was on there that was kind of a center, right wing center girl that talked politics. And I would just watch her things when I flipped through there. And then, uh, and then the uh, mothership come. That she goes, uh, the mothership opened, which is a, uh, an, an anti woke comedy club. And, uh, and then she started going through the people and she said, Ron White was there. He sucks. And anytime Ron White goes on stage, you'll, you'll never hear anything he hadn't just said on television a million times. And I was like, all right, you can think I suck if you want to. But the other part means you didn't go to that show because I didn't do one word that's ever been published and I never do. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I guess what they want is for us to get all these jokes pre-approved by them so they can tell us. And boy, wouldn't that just be the death of comedy? So you have to fight that at all levels. You got to be able to say there is no subject matter that a great writer can't tackle. Now, if you're not a great writer, oh. you should stay away from it, yes. right? But if you're good enough, you can talk about 9-11. You can talk about transgenders if you're a good enough writer. And uh, now a lot of those subjects I don't get into anyway, and I don't get into politics because I don't, I don't, I don't want to be divisive. And, uh, and, and I, know my, I know my crowd and I know how dead split they are. Yep. And uh, so let's just do something else. But I still, I just want to make them laugh, right? And, and have a, a good time so they'll come back again someday. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, we've, we've created an environment there that we're free to do whatever we want. And uh, I mean, even Roseanne comes up there and Roseanne will go queuing on on you, you know, but, and nobody cares. Nobody so cares. We don't care. Now, there are going to be people in the audience that are like, I can't believe she said that. But fuck them, you know? Yeah. Fuck them if they can't take a joke. Yeah. Joke. Well, it's interesting, too, because through watching Kill Tony, you'll see many of the, you know, aspiring comics attempt to go into those areas. And to your point, it's like when they don't, they're not a great writer and can't deliver it, it sounds terrible. Right. But I'll find myself, Oftentimes, like laughing and then just imagining, like imagine if there was a camera on me, the shit I'm laughing at right now. And there's, it's just like a little thing. It pings me and it's like, that's why we're here. So we can just laugh about all this shit because everything is ridiculous. This world is ridiculous. Like, look at us. We're, how did we even get here? I don't know. And like, let's just enjoy the fucking ride. And get some laughs. You yeah. Know? And it's and it does feel glorious to laugh, you know. It does it just feels glorious, and uh, and I think you get karma points for making people laugh, and I think that's uh, that's how my life got to where it is today. That that making people taking the time out of your day to make people laugh or make people smile, I think is good, and I think you get rewarded for it. One of the things um, I have noticed about you, you know, whether it's at the golf course or out, when you're very good at actually about approaching someone and just asking how they're doing and in a, in a very genuine way where, I, I mean, again, we've all been around people who are famous and I don't blame anybody for anything. Like you don't have your privacy or whatever, but you, you've always been really open and generous and, and shown a lot of grace for people. And I think that's 
I mean, I, I just love the way you show up. I think it's really I'm cool. pretty grateful, you know, for what it all, uh, you know, my retirement plan was maybe something neat will happen. That was, <laughs> that was the whole plan. And, uh, so I, you know, I, I really don't feel like a big, uh, a big celebrity anyway. And I know people fuss over me some and they sure and, do. Uh, and that's fine. And that'll go away on its own. You know, one day that people, nobody will care about it. And, and, uh, and so, you know, right now, I, I you know, I, I really just socially, I play golf where I play golf and, uh, and I don't see myself above or below anybody at the, at the golf course. And, uh, you know, it's just people that we all ended up in the same place, exact same place at the exact same time. So find out what about those people, uh, uh, no, I don't believe in coincidences, right? I believe things happen. And uh, people walk into your life, so you should keep open to that, you know, and uh, and be inquisitive, uh, and you know, also you can find out real quick if you don't like somebody, and you yeah. want to steer another way. You know? I will call you out on one thing: you don't always treat people like you're even. There are times after I've, I've handed you twenty or thirty dollars where you make it, you make me feel like I'm maybe a peg or two below you. You want to speak to that? Well, you are on those days. You know, those are, those are what you call your bad days. My bad days were in East Lake. So, oh uh, boy, the, we, the, we don't need, we the don't worst need to take do the down I've ever taken. And uh, but you know we have a we have you know if we you know they, they put us together we played golf one time found out we're really compatible we live near each other we play golf at the same place and yeah we like all we have matching habits <laughs> we yeah. sure do right. <laughs> And, uh, so, uh, so why not? And, and if you, if you keep your eyes open to, you know, to those kinds of experiences, you run into some really cool people, you know, yeah. I've, I've found that to be true throughout my life, you know? Yeah, I agree for sure. I'd love to know, how did you get started? I mean, everybody, you know, we all have people who are funny and, you know, there are times where I think I'm pretty funny, but I've never considered this, this path, right? in my entire life. And so what was it about you? Obviously you have that gift, but how did it become like an actual path for you? I'll tell you the short Here, get version of me, it. Give me one of these, take the headphones off and you're getting a little bit of, you're, you're just, your hair is all standing up. Oh. I know you want that, that beautiful mane fucking knocking off. <laughs> it, just got a, it got a little fussy on you. Just give me this one. Just slide it on like that. Like you're putting in, what do those girls put in the, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like a big, you're perfect now. Okay. Now you just fucked it up again. <laughs> All right. Maybe I should have a mirror. There you go. Now don't touch it. Okay. Very good. What were we talking about? How did you start? Oh, uh, I'll give you the, my, uh, my uncle, uh, Dr. Charles Pollard, uh, Baptist preacher. And, uh, I loved to go to church, uh, when I was young and, uh, but more than anything else, I loved my uncle Charlie and he was funny and a really, really good pace, rhythm and timing speaker. And, uh, so I sat in that church and learned a craft just watching him work. And he was so good at it. He still does it to this day uh, in Farmington, New Mexico. He uh, has a church on an Indian reservation 
that uh, like 20 people go to. He's there every Sunday. His daughter plays piano and sings and, and uh, nobody pays him to do it. And he just does it anyway because he believes that's the way he believes. It's kind of like you going guy. down to the mothership. You just well, go yeah, in there doing your lot, sets. There's a lot of parallels between me and Uncle Charlie. And, uh, but, uh, and then uh, I ended up with a really bad uh, drug problem when I was young. And uh, I got probated to a drug abuse program that I went to work for as a counselor after I'd been sober for a couple of years. And, and, uh, and then I became their primary public speaker. Cause what we found out about was I was really good at telling my story. Uh, and so they would take me to schools and, uh, they would bring in, you know, 300 kids. I'd talk to them about it and then they bring in 300 more and, and, uh, and I, I, and I'd seen other people do it, but I was clear that, I was real good at this, you know, that I could make them think and I could make them laugh and I could make them whatever. And, uh, and, uh, so I did that and never had any aspirations of being a comedian, but I was a big fan and I had a lot of albums and stuff from, uh, Cosby and, uh, all the, you know, all the greats. And, uh, uh, so that was in my early twenties. And then uh, when I was 28, uh, somebody built a comedy club between where I lived and where I worked. So, uh, they put the sign up early. It was funny bone comedy club in Arlington. And, uh, then, uh, the guy, guy I worked with a guy named Sam Bartholomew, uh, went to the first open mic night and he came back into the office the next day and said, Ron, you're funnier than these guys. You should go down there and do this. I'm like, really? You think so? He goes, I have here it every day. I hear it every day. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so I wrote four minutes of rip snorting. How comedy. hard was that to write those first four minutes? You know, it was, uh, or did you not know any better? So you just yeah, wrote the four minutes. I just wrote the four minutes. I think I got, uh, you know, a couple of laughs. I had one pretty good joke. Do you remember and, it? And, uh, yeah, but it's been hacked so many times it wouldn't even uh, sound. It was original idea 35, 37 years ago. Well, give it so, a shot. We'll, we'll, oh, my wife said, did these pants make me look big? And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it's that fat ass. <laughs> so that was, a, that, and I, I went on stage. I got there early and practiced. It still my slaps. I, I got there early so I could go up and do my thing with a microphone without a crowd there. And when I did that, when the waitress laughed and I'm like, Oh, I got one. I got to laugh. I gotta, that's my, that was my big stronghold. And, uh, and I was, I was really, I weighed probably about 260 pounds then. And I it was one line was, uh, I talked to somebody in the audience, a girl is, you ever had that? I want a fat man look in your eyes. She goes, no, you got it now. <laughs> and then I'd sing, uh, I'd sing to her. It was stupid. But it worked, yeah. you know, and, uh, anything that got a laugh, I would consider great. You yeah. Know? And, uh, so that was at that little club and, uh, you know, and then I figured out how to make, you know, get spots at the other clubs and, and then I moved up really quick. I mean, I got good at it real fast and, uh, uh, probably too fast. And then I got to, uh, uh, you know, where I was middling for road for on the road, I, I opened a show for Sam Kennison 
and uh, at the Dallas County Convention Theater. And I'd uh, I'd only been doing stand-up about two years. And uh, this was a remake show for, for Sam. And uh, his brother Bill was there. Sam wasn't there when I got there and wasn't there when I got off stage. And, uh, and it, it was a remake. What's that mean? It, it, he'd already canceled it once. And it, so okay. it rescheduled. Gotcha. I guess it'd be a better way to say it. But, uh, uh, but Bill told me, he said, Ron, sometimes, uh, and I just found out the day I was doing it, that I was doing it because this guy named Carla Bove that did all of his stuff went to rehab or whatever that was. And uh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I, I, I got this. And uh, he said, if they don't, if, sometimes they'll just scream at you because they want to hear him scream. Oh, gosh. And yeah. I'm like, okay. well, it didn't work out that way. It worked out. I murdered 2,000 people, you know, and I never played more than 300. How long was your set? About 15 is all I had. Yeah. And uh, you, you could see Bill walking, looking over on the stage, going, God dang, it's killing it. So, uh, anyway, I come off stage, and it's just me and Alex Ramundo, my buddy, and my wife, Lori, uh, Marshall's mother. And uh, we're sitting back there, and then all of a sudden, Sam's entourage shows up. So there's now there's 15 people backstage, and uh, he sends his bodyguard to get me. Now th there's no that stage has been empty for 20 minutes, and uh, he sends his bodyguard to get me and takes me up. And he's got a hooker and a big old vial of coke. He's banging on the table, trying to get a big rock stuck out of it, and he's just working on it. And he looks up and he goes, "Heard you killed him, cowboy." And I said, yeah, it's a good crowd. Sam, you're going to have a good time. I didn't know what to say to him. <laughs> yeah, what do you say to him? And then he looked at me and he goes, how about a cup of coffee? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do a, I'll do a bump with uh, a <laughs> cup Kenison. of coffee. So he gives me a little line. He does make a big old nasty looking morally thing that he snorts up. And then uh, out of the kindness of his heart, he faked a heart attack. And nobody believed it but me because everybody had seen it. And I thought he was dying and he, he's really spitting. It looked real. And I was about to put my mouth on his mouth and he goes, gotcha. And hopped up and went on stage. Watch this. Goes out and just annihilates this crowd, you know, at the peak of his powers. Wow. And, uh, well, afterward, there were people there from the funny bone who owned 21 clubs. And there were people there from the laugh stop who owned six clubs at the time. And, uh, they got together and they said, uh, uh, you know, well, first of all, they said after the show, Kennison's like, I got a limo and some strippers. We're going to go to some titty bars, sort some cocaine. And, and then I got uh, the, the club owners going, well, we'd like to have dinner with you after the show tonight and talk about your career. I'm like, I'm going to go with Sam. <laughs> and uh, this will all be here tomorrow, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to sneak off with... Uh, Sam to the debauchery factory, find out what the next 16 years of my life is going to be oh, like. And uh, so they, that's what they did. They offered me, you know, 40, all the work that I want as a middle act, making $500 a week. And, uh, and that's, that's how it started. And uh, within like, within like another year, I was headlining, you know, B rooms and, and, uh, occasionally an A room that I shouldn't have been in. And, uh, but, uh, for the most part, you know, I did, I, I did nine shows a week. So, right. Uh, so I was working a lot and, uh, and nothing will make you better than, you know, practice, practice, practice. I, I do before I want to get to the, how, how you got to 
blue collar comedy tour and how that whole worked. But isn't it interesting? You pointed out like this thing all started because you had a drug problem as a kid. It is, and, and in essence, it. When it, you think about like the, all the reps you got going to these different places to share your story, which you knew really well, but could really deliver it. And it just like, yeah, I really even surprised myself. And I, and it, but, but to go back further, I was able to deliver it because of Charles Pollard, because I knew I already knew how to be a public speaker because I'd watched it done so many times and that I was good at it. I just picked it up, you know, yeah. from sitting in the pew, watching my uncle jam. That's so cool. And, uh, so, uh, and then, uh, and then to have that experience, you know, that it really was all that stuff counts, you know? Yeah. Um, and even though, you know, the stage time was a little more nerve wracking, but, uh, but it was something I was pretty comfortable with. Yeah. Uh, especially compared to the people that were throwing up in the parking lot, you know, before they called their name, you know, it didn't have that effect on me. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but, and, and the shows, you know, it, you know, people come to comedy clubs to laugh anyway. So if you give them any reason to, they'll do it. Yeah, they're and, trying. Yeah, you know, and so I think I was telling you, I went and saw Louis C.K. when he was in town last year. And whoever opened for him, bro, I'm like, I, I really try to laugh. I just want everyone, want the comic to feel good. And I, I couldn't laugh. It was, it was very dark, but it was like the, the, to your point, like in my opinion, she didn't know how to write the jokes where that shit was funny. It was just dark and dark and dark. And I was like, bro, come on. And I don't remember who she is, but it was just curious how, how she how, how ended was, up. How was Lewis? Killed. Yeah, right. I saw him too. I saw him at the Creek in the Cave a little, uh, you know, just a few months ago. I think it was before he did those bigger shows, but, uh, I, mean, I went back and talked to him afterwards and I was like, man, I, for I forgot how funny you are, dude. It, it was so well written and delivered. And, uh, he's, he's something else. You he's, know? Yeah. He's been one of my favorites for a while. Um, how did you get to blue comedy? Well, you know, uh, because I was the opening act, you know, that uh, you'd work with every headliner that came through town, you know, and, uh, uh, New Year's, I think the first year I was doing stand-up, Foxworthy and a guy named Vic Henley, who's passed, uh, came to town. And he and I were just kindred spirits. You know, we both played golf. We uh, both did the same thing for a living. He was really good. And uh, uh, so that was kind of always there, and uh, the friendship was. And, uh, and then when he got big enough to take somebody with him, he took me with him. Uh, everybody always thought it would be Vic because they were, they were really close and, uh, they had some kind of a falling out. I never understood. And, and, uh, so those dates just went to me, you know, when and Jeff was, you know, private jet and, uh, when his thing came out. So that was great. And, uh, we were, he was just ridiculously generous with me and, uh, and encouraging and, you know, believed the story and, and gave me that opportunity. And so I did it for a couple of years and then he had to bring somebody else in because I, he wanted somebody that could help him write and I couldn't write for him. And, uh, 
So that guy did it for a while, and then he brought me back on. And then uh, the Kings of Comedy went out with Cedric and those guys, and yeah, and we're doing huge numbers with four comics. And so we were on the plane on the way back home, and uh, and uh, Jeff told me because Bill Ingvall had a tour with him and another guy, and and uh, said we're going to put these two two tours together and put it on the road. And and I remember my comment was. That's retarded. <laughs> what a visionary I am. Yeah. You don't need four comedians in a show. Yeah. That's weird. So and I did, but I didn't know about uh, what kind of numbers they were doing down there. And sure. uh, so, and then somebody came up with the name blue collar. Cause we didn't want a redneck. We just really wanted working class, you know, uh, folks that's who comes to our shows, you know? And, uh, and then we didn't know how successful it would be. And it would have been nothing without Jeff because he was the catalyst for the whole thing. And, uh, and turned out it was, you know, people just loved it. And, and, uh, you know, when, when Warner brothers made the movie, I was like, wow, there, I have a chance of getting famous off of 10 minutes of material, which means I've got this whole block of material that is polished for 15 years ready to go. And most people burn that whole thing, getting famous with a big special. Oh. Well, I was on blue collar one for 10 minutes. And then I did that tater salad story at the end. And, uh, and that is a perfect storm, uh, uh, because they don't know what's coming. Yeah. And, uh, which is my full blown show. That's completely mature and banging. And, uh, now it was a lot bluer then, because I always worked clean when I worked with Jeff. Okay. So whenever they moved over to me, they got a way bluer show, and a lot of people didn't like it, uh, but more people did. And uh, so, even though I got complaints, and what about the family environment? And you know, we we tried to warn them with ratings that it's not exactly the same thing, but you know, still works. And so I was able to stay in you know theaters for you know twenty twenty four years. Uh, uh, you know, I, I put it up just against anybody. It's hard to do that. Hard to get up there and stay there for a long, long, long time. I'm curious about just like coming up with a bit. Like, do you have, do you sit down? Do you have a, like a, a process where you sit down and you're, you're kind of writing about like just the, the very, the seed of it, or is it in an interaction where something happens and you're like that there may be something there. I'm going to work on that. Well, the, I can think of one thing that's different about me than most comics is that in the 37 years that I've done stand-up comedy, I don't have one piece of paper with one word on it. Not one. Uh, now there may be a set list at the house somewhere with 30 words on it. Uh, if I could find it, but you don't write, I don't write, I don't write it down. I don't write it. It's, it's a brain defect Yeah. that, uh, yeah. if I put that stuff in front of me, I cannot think. And, and it's, and it's really weird. I do have a, a ridiculously bad attention deficit disorder and that I treat when I'm in the mood and, and, uh, uh, but I couldn't do conventional schoolwork either. Uh, but this one thing that's impossible to do, I seem to be able to do with ease. And, uh, 
but you know, uh, I just uh, most guys at my stage, they'll have volumes and volumes of notebooks and all this stuff. Your writing process is not a writing process then. No, I think it's something funny. And I, I, I've always, you know, put myself into a position where I could just go try it. And uh, that's, you know, why I've always been at the store, you know, or doing multiple sets a night. I mean, I'm like, you, go, you know, I'm always on stage. So, uh, and then I record everything. I rarely go back and watch it, but I record almost everything I do. And, um, and the only time I really go back and watch it is when I've been off stage for a while and I'm about to go back on, you know, a tour or whatever. And, uh, so I'll go back and watch some of it, but you know, and I know that I've missed a million jokes that way. And, uh, but it doesn't matter. You know, it, when your brain works like mine, you have to forgive yourself and take what it gives you and not beat yourself up for what, you know, your shortcomings are. So, but, uh, but not, not one piece of paper, not one notebook. So when you go up, do a 15 minute set, right? Tonight, maybe you go out, you do four 15 minute sets. Do you have an idea of what the order of it's going to be? Do you have, you know, the, op like, how does that work out? Well, right this minute, you know, I've got a 15 minute set that I like, yeah. you know, that, uh, has got a bunch of callbacks and it's, you know, it's just a fun little 15 minute set for me to do. So that's pretty polished. Yeah. Now I, I will, I'll bring new ideas into that. And, uh, but for now, and then, and then oh, I'll reinvent it cause I've got about an hour floating around. that's not published. And I've, so this is just kind of my favorite 15 or that 15 minute segment of that hour. So I can do another segment of it. But right now, you know, I know I'm going to go open for Theo Vaughn tonight, 15 minutes. So I'm just going to go do that set, yeah. which will hammer and, yeah. uh, and, and give it to Theo. So, you know, they, uh, you know, it's uh, that, that part of it is just kind of ready to, ready to go. But I know what, I, I know the way they, I'm really good at knowing what order those jokes work the best in and finding the order and finding the place for it just for ultimate, you know, just, it's just for the most pop, yeah. you know, just how to put sets together. You know, I've always been good at that. Are you, do you have any longer sets? I mean, when I went and saw you, when you headlined, uh, at the mothership, you obviously had a longer set. Do you have any coming up that you're doing or are you still just gonna, not till gonna Christmas. Be? Okay. Uh, you know, I, I may start doing, I mean, they didn't do a second show last night. So, uh, at the, at the, in the big room, uh, because Joe didn't want to, I don't know. I don't even know why, but they didn't. And, uh, did they sell tickets to that show? Yeah. they oh. did. And, uh, Oh fuck. I don't know what happened. It's such a hard ticket to get to it's such a bummer. Right. And, uh, but, uh, so Christina P came in and did the early show and then there wasn't a late show. And, uh, and I was talking to Tony later and he said, he said, yeah, it's my birthday. And I, you know, I, I just really didn't want to do a show. And so Joe just didn't have one. I'm like, you know, he, he could have called me, but I know he, and I know he wouldn't because it's kind of a big ask for me to come in and headline that room. At the, but I, and, and also Christine P I only reason I did her show is I showed up and she said, ah, I thought about calling you, but I'm like, you know, I, I didn't think you'd want to be on my little show. And I, I'm like, who am I to call Ron White? And I'm like, don't look at it that way. You know, I'm just a comic here in town that can, you know, if you need my help, call me up. I'll come down here and do it. 
And uh, so I may do a few of those, just Ron White and Friends, where I may do a 25-minute set yeah. or a 30-minute set at the end of it. But, you know, right now I really like to have my freedom and not plan those things because I like to let my days evolve, you know, and, and, uh, and, and also Joe's very generous with all the comics, but I won't take any money from Joe, uh, because he gives me so much without, <clears throat> I could never repay the debt and I have no intention. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but I really, uh, I, I love Joe so much, but I, I, but I won't, I won't take money from him because he's given me something that I need. And, uh, you know, and he, he puts me on that gigantic podcast if I need to, you know, he just, he, he, <clears throat> you know, I just, I feel like we're, we're good, you know? And, uh, now if he uses my name to sell tickets, then I take that money. Sure. So, but, but, but to do the day-to-day -day stuff, I, you know, that's, that's free. Yeah. I wonder, you know, you just shared that, you know, Christina P didn't quite feel like reaching out, didn't feel comfortable. You're like, come on, just, I'm here. Like, how much of that do you think was that kind of generosity was, um, you know, I guess, influenced by, you know, Jeff Foxworthy? You said how generous he was. You know, uh, I guess I could have learned some of it from Jeff or probably uncle Charlie, or, you mm. know, I just grew up in an environment that you're, you know, I, I remember whenever we got the first copy of blue collar worn from Warner brothers, he it went to Jeff's house, you know, cause it was his show. And so he called me and he goes, I got it over here. Come get it. And, uh, and then it, you could tell like he almost didn't want to give it to me and he, that he was worried. And, uh, he goes, he gave us some thought and he goes, um, this is going to make you rich and famous. Be nice to everybody. And I was like, fuck you. Give me the, tape. I want to see this fucking. So, you know, but you know, Jeff, Jeff has always been led by example, you know, of just how, just how polite he's just polite. You know, he's polite, he's kind to everybody. Uh, now, I probably have a different vision of myself than other comics have of me because in my vision of me is not that big a deal. And sometimes they have it in their head that I'm a big deal because I've done these theaters for all these years and have a name, but it's, uh, that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, not, not much. Yeah. I would rather, you know, I would, uh, well, I don't know what I would trade it for, but it, it's, it, it's nice that I'm held in some sort of esteem by the young comics and, and that, that I'm respected by my peers. That matters, matters more to me than anything else that, uh, when Chappelle comes to town, he calls and, and, uh, rock is always saying ridiculously nice things about me and very high profile things and Rogan, Jesus, you know, he can't uh, stop talking about you. You know, he just it's, uh, it's loved it because cool. he stole my boyfriend. <laughs> he did. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about this before we get on the podcast, but I'd love to just hear about, you know, in fact, let me just preface this, but, you know, Ron was, was, he's not really familiar with the podcast. So he was asking me, you know, like what, 
tell me a little bit about it. And one of the things I shared is part of my growth has been when I'm in these really shitty situations where I feel like someone's fucking me or there's something going on that I can actually see that there's something on the other side of it, that there is going to be a gift, even though I'm in the shit right now. And so the sooner you're talking about our golf game yesterday, (laughs) (laughs) I did win one hole. Granted, we only played like 14, but so what, what, what was, you know, where, where have you felt that in your life where you're like, this is fucking terrible. Like shit's, burning down all around me. I got fucked in this relationship, whatever. And then it was like one of the best things that ever happened. It just released you from whatever this idea was that you thought was so important. Well, you know, I got a horrible review in uh, LA uh, really early on. And it was a brutal, brutal thing. And, uh, it was in the Orange County edition of the L.A. Times, written by a guy named Duncan Strauss. And uh, the guy that booked that room, it was a it was a laugh stop. There used to be one here. And uh, they owned four or five of them, and he came out. Saw me do 15 minutes and just smoke. And then he booked me to headline the laugh stop. Well, the two guys the week before me were a guy named Bobby Slayton, who's a huge, huge club act, and Jerry Seinfeld before Seinfeld. And, uh, but it was a really prominent stand-up comic. So then it was my three-year-old act. So, so I went down there and, and I was really nervous and, uh, because I hadn't performed within 1500 miles of there. And I saw who was, you know, the headliner guy that really admired a lot. I'm like, I'm not near that good, which I wasn't. And then uh, one of the waitresses pointed out to that guy right there, that's Duncan Strauss. He's here to review your show for the Los Angeles Times. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't help the way I feel at all. And uh, so I went on stage and I thought I pulled it off. You know, it wasn't my best, but they laughed where they were supposed to. And, you know, pretty good, you know, I thought. He'll want to talk to me after the set. I come off stage. He's not there. And um, well, the next night, they, they had this kind of an open mic night. So there's amateur comics that went on before me, and I killed. I mean, the best set I'd ever had. I'm giving advice. You know, I'm I'm thinking about divorcing my wife and, and uh, hooking up with the girl in the Takati beer poster. I mean, that that one set really changed who I thought I was. And, uh, and then the review came out the next day. And... Uh, but I, and I had gotten so drunk that night that that I literally I could follow a trail of popcorn. I, apparently, I'd gotten some popcorn somewhere, and I and I woke up with popcorn, and I have popcorn out the door, popcorn to the popcorn on the elevator, popcorn, oh, and, so, no. and I went down and I got to read this set. I mean, that's just going to this uh, review probably be the start of my career, you know, but really good, and. Uh, but they were sold out. So the club was only two blocks away. And uh, so I walked down there, but I'd been down there before. So I kind of met the people that worked there and I walked in and they, this one girl goes, don't read it, Ron. It's not true. It's, it's a hatchet job. He does it to other people. Just don't read it. And I'm like, what? Just review. Just don't read it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
I'm like, yeah, that matters to me, you know, let me read it. So I got the, the big picture of me making a face I swear I've never made. But the camera don't lie, you know. In, in block print above that, even when white's not blue, he's not funny. And it starts off watching White's 41-minute show. He pointed out that I didn't even get to the 45 minutes that I'm supposed to get to. Oh. Uh, was like, what, what, it was watching White's 41-minute show was like watching a polar bear lumber around on stage, something comical or interesting happening only occasionally. And, uh, and I was like, oh my God, I, I, I dropped the paper a couple of times while I was reading it because I couldn't control my hands. I was just, and I also felt like I had been found out, you know, that I was a phony and, uh, this is the roller coaster, you know, because the night before I was the king of the world. And, uh, and so, so I went across the street. And I bought a bottle of tequila and a pack of razor blades and went back to my hotel, which was the Marriott Suites Hotel on the Bay. At the time, the nicest hotel I'd ever stayed in. Mm -hmm. I mailed the razor blades to the guy that wrote the review with a note that said, just in case you're ever in the mood. (laughs) And and then uh, I sat there and I had a bunch of weed and, sat there and just read it. That's why I can still quote it no. 35 years later or whatever, 34. And, uh, and just sat there and drank until I was passed out with my own drool on my own bad review, uh, with a joint in my hand. And so, so now it's Friday, right? So I got two shows to do, but I think in oh, my mind no. that those shows are canceled because they read that review and there nobody came and it's canceled. And I'm like, well, I've done three shows. So surely they have to pay me for those so I can have enough money to get back home. Well, turns out the girl in the office was right. It doesn't matter what this guy says. Nobody gives a shit. It's wrapped around a bass and it's in the freezer. And there's comedy club sold out every night. Doesn't matter who's fucking there. And, uh, but now I have had no sleep and I'm, waking up from a drunken stupor, unshaved. And I show up and they're like, Ron, you have a show. You have two shows. Fucking parking lots packed. I'm like, uh. So then I kind of validated the bad review by going up and doing some really bad sets and uh, <sighs> and just hammered drunk. And then the guy that booked me called the club and he said, I just want to see how I read that, you know. That was brutal. I just want to see how Ron's handling it. And they're like, oh, he's not. He's not handling it at all. He's drinking like a fish. He's, uh, you know, I don't even know if he'll be awake for the next show. uh, (laughs) So then the Saturday came and the sets were a little better and Sunday set was pretty good. And, uh, and, but what it taught me uh, was that uh, that's not where I should have been. And uh, that the answer to the question is go back to the Midwest where things really don't matter and, uh, and sharpen the blade for what it turned out was another 14 years or 11 years, I guess. Wow. And, uh, uh, and the guy, I saw him at one of Kathleen Madigan's shows one time and he came up to me and apologized to me. And I was like, no, you told me the truth. 
when I needed to hear the truth. And, uh, and I'll be grateful for the guy for the rest of my life for, for, cause it, I don't think anybody else could have done it. Could have kicked me in the ass with such an impact that it changed the direction I was going and, uh, and made me back up and think, I mean, even though I had on some level knew I shouldn't have been there. Sure. Uh, I was booked, so I had to go. I contractually obligated to do these shows, but you know, I just went out and did what I considered the smart thing to do, which is to go out to the Midwest where all the stage time is, get out of LA. There's nothing there for me. And they always say LA will come knocking when you get ready. So, um, so that's what I did. And then, you know, years later, the blue collar thing happened and I was one of the bigger comics in the country. And so I would, uh, you know, then when I went out to LA, it was all on my terms, so whatever show I wanted, you know, and, uh, and I'd earned it, you know, for sure, and deserved it. So, but boy, when success comes a little too early, it's, uh, it's yeah, and you're not ready for it. That's painful, though. I mean, that's a painful because it, it feels very personal, even though it it wasn't right. He was arguably he's he's talking about your comedy, and it yeah, of, yeah, it was pretty personal. But, <laughs> I but, thought it was pretty personal. Sure. Uh, but you know, you it well. It's just things that are disguised. You know, something that looks really bad is really, really good. You know, yeah. and that one was hard to see, and it did hurt. I mean, it really hurt. And uh, I was just glad I didn't call my wife and divorce her because when I got the bad review, I was in love with her again. That's how that's how <laughs> yeah. love works. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Where like today, like the young comics coming up, like where where are they kind of missing out? Like what are you know, you had your, everybody has their own path, you know, but I feel yeah. like comedy, I'm sure with social media and everything, everything has just changed what it, what it means to be a, uh, what that path looks like for a comic. Where are they missing it right now? I don't know that they are missing it. You know, that it's a different world. I mean, I know that it's, you know, if you go out there and win a contest and, uh, all of a sudden you're famous, but you haven't done all the groundwork for it. I know that's a disaster that you, you know, never, ever. You mean like last, last comic standing or one of those whatever, things? Whatever, yeah. you know, or get famous on TikTok or whatever and, and have people think that there's something substantial there that you can tour with when there is not. Uh, then that's a dead-end street and that's your problem. Uh, and usually those guys will start stealing material because they don't have the, the show. I mean, they have the opportunity to be a big deal, but they're not a big deal. They didn't do the work. They got there somehow... There are shortcuts now to, but shortcut to where, you know, that's the, that's the question. And, uh, uh, so there are a lot of ways to get famous now. And I don't, I don't begrudge anybody for using any of those things. And, uh, and they weren't available when I did stand up. So I had to go through the natural progression of, of, uh, you know, time and, and waiting for opportunities and, uh, but there was, you know, there was no, you know, of course, no, no TikTok. And even the, the social media that was there, I didn't know how to really operate it. So, uh, and then I, I, I did Twitter for a while and I had a bunch of followers, but I, I always let the comments affect me too much. And then I got sure. to, um, I got to where I, I just put it all down completely. But now it's almost impossible for somebody that doesn't know me to say something shitty to me. Uh, and then, and the only way they could possibly do it is to get a porn star to write it on her ass. And I, 
there's a chance I might watch that porno movie. And he yeah. goes, Ron White sucks. So you got me. Yeah. You got me right there. Yeah. Busted. It's so interesting, this idea of stealing jokes. I imagine you you steal a joke once and it's, is, is that, can you come back from that? Or do you get, you get one kind of pass? And I guess it's all context for who the person is and what they've yeah, done. Yeah. You know, you, you can steal without knowing you're stealing for sure. Uh, because if I go back and listen to my first special, I, it's amazing how much I sound like Foxworthy oh. in, uh, in delivery and all that. And I would have denied that's that. probably different, right? You're trying to like, you emulating like people that you're, yeah, but it's another way of stealing someone's oh, persona. Yeah. You know, it becomes a little more subjective though, I guess. Right. right. Yeah. So, you know, you, uh, now, if you're just stealing jokes, you're a piece of shit, you know, because you know you're doing that. And uh, and so there's no cure for it. And uh, the. Uh, except for you, you know, deserve to die slow, painful death, you know, Rogan was, of course, the king of that when he threw down with uh, whatever that Car- Carlos Mencia. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know. I'm sure Carlos wished he could have hit Joe in the mouth, but he knew what would happen if he did. And that, so that just kind of takes it out of the equation, right? <laughs> Joe's a safe zone. You know, yeah, yeah. there's going to be no fight <laughs> yeah, yeah. as you know yeah. what would happen. So, you know, that's something we kind of police ourselves with, you know, uh, keep an eye on it. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it just hold a gun to my head and steal from my family. If you, I, I went into a club one time in Tampa, Florida, and there was a guy on stage on open mic night that I just worked with. And apparently he recorded a bit oh. because he did it so well. And it was an unstealable piece about a, about Cincinnati chili. And, uh, and he did it well. And, uh, and, uh, afterwards I grabbed him by the collar and drug him outside, threw him up against the wall and, and, uh, made a bunch of promises to him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I doubt he, you know, who, who knows if he did it again, but, uh, you know, it's, there's just no room for it. No, no. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think like within, within the trading world, I mean, it, it, there's integrity and then there's, you know, uh, there are guys who do shitty stuff, but it's, I feel like that stealing of a joke thing is like so clear. Yeah. And it's very, you know, intentional. And some people feel like they're entitled to, uh, to anything that someone says in conversation. You know, if I say something, even in a group thought, I, and I say it, I might be thinking about taking that to the stage. So just because I say it and you hear me say it, it doesn't mean you can take it to the stage. You oh, know, it's just a conversation. Damn. So it gets kind of tricky, you know. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, it's uh, it doesn't come up that that often how hard was it uh being on the road so much i know marshall your son traveled with you a lot what was it like how i mean i imagine again pro athletes are on the road but they come home like you're on the road on the road yeah well i had joint custody of marshall so uh when he was two and a half years old uh he was in he he was on the road with me as a baby in a diaper that's so and uh and uh, I would uh, hand him to a waitress at night and go, just hold him for about 45 minutes. I'll be right back down. He, uh, he doesn't smell that good. There's diapers in that bag. And 
And uh, so he and I, you know, that's our our journey, the uh, good or bad, whatever, you know, it's what we did and until he was, you know, old enough to go into kindergarten, then he couldn't do it anymore. But sure. uh, so then when he got older, you know, now he's a big hairy kid. So uh, <laughs> when he got older, he worked for me for a while and, and uh, he did. Yeah. And so he was, he did my VIP stuff on the bus. So I would have my best friend who was my road manager, Steve Cook, who's dead now. Alex Ramundo, uh, I don't think you've met Alex, have you? Uh, oh. He was the bartender in the club I started at, and he and I have done a gillion shows together. We also owned the tequila company, number one tequila. And uh, and uh, so I, I had three of my favorite people, and then Pat driving the bus, and, you know, so it was a glorious time uh, for me uh, just to have those people together to go through this experience with me. So. You know, you really want to share that stuff uh, with people you care about as much as you can. So I was able to do that and uh, for a long time. How long has Marshall lived in Austin? I don't know. Ten years, man. So he was here before you guys yeah. moved here. Yeah. Yeah. And then you guys play golf every week. I've gotten to play with you guys a bunch. He's awesome. Yeah, he yeah. So no, much I'm, fun out there. I'm, I'm so proud of him. He's just such a good human being. He's just such just, a great attitude. Yeah, I love him to death. So, uh, and then we're we're also getting to interact with Mima now. My mother, you know, moved here, so which is, is a new a part of my life because I've always been the funding partner. Yeah, in her life, but her life's always been in Florida. So I, I moved her here. And now I'm the point man and the funding partner. And uh, I'm like, wow, this is way more than I thought it would be. Oh, yeah. With, uh, with doctors and pills. And I'm like, oh, no, what the? Falling down. I mean, we, we, yeah. there's been a couple of times we've played and you're like, I got to roll. Yeah. I got to go take care of my mom. She hit the dirt. Yeah. And she's doing better. You know, she's getting stronger. She's got a new knee. I'm so, you know, I'm, and I'm thrilled that she's here. I mean, I just love it. Uh, so my, her niece who she raised, her granddaughter came in last week and her, and her daughter's here. My sister's here this week. And, uh, so we're, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a new adventure to, to just have all the unlimited access to my mom, which is, which is great, you know? Yeah. Um, and Marshall too, it's really the first time he's been around her a ton, mm -hmm. you know, cause they, they, he was always off with his mother. They lived in. North Carolina for years and Phoenix for years. And you know, they've always lived around, but so it's, uh, we're all getting a big dose of mothers, which is great. Good. Great. Tell me about number one tequila. Well, uh, you know, but Alex Ramundo again, uh, he, uh, is, was born in Acapulco, Mexico. And, uh, so he's an immigrant and, uh, and a great guy, you know, just somebody I've had so much fun with over the years and uh, had, had always been a tequila drinker. And he just had found this, uh, this tequila, a buddy of his was in the spirits business in Mexico. And then, and then I went down there and, and then the guy said, don't forget to go to the Rebesca's distillery. It's a, it's a shithole and nobody goes there and, but they're great people and, and, and they make the best tequila around they're craftsmen and they've been farmers for 140 years and they built this distillery, you know, 70 years ago. And it's like 
you know, it was a shithole. It was like a nearly dead dogs laying around and fat mm. people in dirty shirts and <laughs> the glasses were filthy. And, uh, but the tequila was so perfect. Mm. And, uh, so they didn't have a presence in the U S and, uh, so after much consideration and years of talking to them about letting us bring it, cause they, they were, they wanted no part of us, uh, bringing it cause they sell it for five times what I sell it for in ports in Mexico. And, uh, and it, and it wins awards there. And there's another 500 tequilas you've never heard of yeah. in Mexico. And this is just one of those badass little small batch distilleries that, uh, that we were able to negotiate with and get, get the rights to distribute it in the United States. So, um, uh, and it's doing well, you know, it's never been over budgeted. That's for sure. So it's always been pretty slow growth, but yeah. steady. And, you know, I hired a CEO that I could not afford, uh, but could not afford not to have him. And, uh, and he was the answer to all our problems, uh, complicated or not complicated. Hmm. Uh, got him hmm. rich Espy. He ran the biggest liquor house in Nevada and championed us there. And, uh, so, you know, so the, you know, that's it. We sell great tequila. It's rare. You, most people don't even, don't even know where to get it. And, uh, but you can go to taters tequila.com and I can send it to your house. Oh yeah. So uh, give it a try. You'll fall in love with it. It's great. Tate, you're going to, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, well, I don't know, man. Feels like a wrap. Hey, what a great place, man. Yeah. It's thanks great having you thanks for your uh, friendship too, man. We're really enjoying each other. Uh, I liked yesterday the best, but, uh, you, know, <laughs> yeah. you had your moments in East Lake. Yes, I did. Yeah, no, man, I appreciate you. It's been really fun to to get to know you, play golf, hang out, just do life, you know? Absolutely, and we live near each other, too. Yeah, so how about that? Works out great. Well, thanks uh, thanks to your audience uh, for listening for a little while, and, uh, and thank you for uh, yeah, working thank- the buttons and stuff. Yeah, thanks, Linz, for doing the first part of the tour as well. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.